You can be seated. If you've got your Bibles, take and turn them to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're in the midst of this series, mentioned a couple of times, where we're looking at the last words of Jesus. We're talking about those moments before Jesus would die on the cross while he is literally hanging on a torture device created by the Roman Empire. And in those moments, he expressed some things that would change history forever because of the significance of what was happening on the cross. And more importantly, the significance of what happened three days later when he rose again from the grave. And so I'm excited to continue that series with me. I want to start today by asking a question, all right? And so just uh, kind of getting gauge out here of, of who, we're, who I'm talking to, who's with me and on this, this subject. How many of you in this room um, listen to podcasts, all right? How many of you in this room don't know what a podcast is? All right, only a couple, all right? We had a few more in the first service in that particular category, but podcasts have been around for 15 or 20 years, and um, they were started, actually, the word podcast comes because they were audio programs that were uploaded to be downloaded on your iPod. Anybody remember those things? Those iPods before the phone took over everything, right? And so they had these different, and they've got podcasts out there for everything, and whatever you're interested in. If you want to cooking podcast, you can get that. If you want to, your favorite sports team, you can go find that. If you're into mystery reading, you can do that. We have a podcast. You can go to find First Baptist Goodlesville and all the sermons from the last seven or eight years are up on our podcast. And so, um, we, you know, we're not, we are not in the top downloaded podcast in America, but we have a podcast. All right. And so, um, but the podcast, the whole genre changed in 2014 with one particular podcast. In 2014, a a reporter decided to do a story about a murder that happened in 1999 in Baltimore, Maryland. And the story was about this young girl, Heyman Lee, who was 18 years old, that was killed after school one day from a local high school, and her former boyfriend, Adnan Syed, was arrested for the crime, convicted, and had been spending time in jail. When those around him began to fight for his innocence, they had been doing it for years, but had begun to ratchet up what they were doing. And so Sarah Koenig, who's a reporter, did a podcast where she just laid out the evidence. Now, I wouldn't say that it was completely unbiased. It was definitely in a certain area, but they put evidence from both sides of it. And at the end of the podcast, 11 episodes... They tried to decide. They really didn't give an answer. They let the audience kind of decide for themselves about whether or not Adnan is guilty of the crime. Just how many of you have listened to Serial in some way? All right, all right, a few of us. They did another. uh, They did another season that went. over the, I don't know if you remember this story, Bo Bergdahl, who was the guy that walked away from his unit um, in the Middle East and uh, has been charged and convicted as a deserter, as a, a traitorous uh, act, and kind of laid out the same kind of things. So here's the point I want to make about all that. That in 2018, so four years through this, 340 million times serial had been downloaded. Now just think about that for a minute. 340 million times. So there are maximum at that time of 23 episodes. So even if you say you kind of divide that among people, and some people don't know all the episodes, but you're somewhere in the neighborhood they have estimated to 75 million people listen to this. That's an amazing number. 
what it spawned was this whole genre of true crime podcast. Disappearances that couldn't be explained, unexplained deaths, unsolved murders. And it gave rise to this new group of people that are out there called Internet Sleuths. Maybe you are an Internet Sleuth and I don't know about it here. But they are solving crimes or attempting to solve crimes just using the Internet all over the place. In fact, there was a a crime that was solved a little less than a year ago that had been unsolved for almost 40 years. It was a crime of a guy that committed somewhere around 70 violent crimes, including murder and assault. That they found him because Internet sleuths were putting DNA profiles up on ancestry DNA kind of sites that were more generalized public and they found a second cousin distant related match to the perpetrator and traced it down to one guy got his DNA and he was the guy that had evaded police for 40 years I was looking at all this stuff looking for some reason God kind of put this and I was reading some of this stuff and I listened to some of this and read some of this I just read a book about the guy that was called and as I was doing that I thought why do we care so much? Why do people care so much? This isn't the first time that true crime has kind of captured the nation, right? I mean, there used to be the shows Forensic Files. Anybody ever watch those Forensic Files or, or Cold Case stuff on Discovery Channel back when that was... I don't know what Discovery Channel... All the ch- channels are different now, but they may be something different. But remember, they would do all these cold cases and that kind of thing. And we have this desire to know what happened. We have a desire. A lot of our fictionalized television or movies are about figuring out what happened. And I ask the question, why do we care so much? And I found an answer in one of the victims of this guy that was just recently caught. He was known as the Golden State Killer, and some of his victims are still around from the assaults and she said that she had waited 40 years from for closure in the case and knowing that he would have his day in court to have justice done gave her closure here's what i've come to think we love all that stuff because we love for justice to be done We are a justice-loving people. We like to know that if a guy commits a crime, they're going to get caught and they're going to get punished. If somebody does something to you, you like the satisfaction of feeling like that justice will be done, that they will have to pay for what they did or that there is some semblance of justice in the world. We all cry when we think injustice has happened or people get off for things they shouldn't get off for, things happen where they shouldn't be allowed to walk and they are, or people are convicted for things that we don't think they actually did. Like, we love justice, good old-fashioned justice. Now, we may disagree on what justice is or what the case may uh, cause us to look for, but we like the concept of justice. And the question becomes, then where does that come from? And I think that's an easier answer. That comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God, and our God is a God of justice. He is a God that decides right and wrong and then acts accordingly. He is a God that dispenses justice as a part of his character. He is a God that punishes those who are evil and rewards good. Psalm 89.14 says this about God. 
It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful and love, faithful love and truth go before you. What it says there is the foundation of your ruling, the foundation of your control, the foundation of how you do in telling people or ruling the world, ruling the universe, is the righteousness and justice, the rightness of who you are, the justice of who you are. And from that flows love and mercy and truth. Psalm 9 says this about God. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. We've just talked about that word forever. He is enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. You see, God does what is right all the time. He does what is just all the time. He enacts justice. You say, well, what determines what is right or wrong? Well, the reality is whatever God determines to be right and wrong is right and wrong. Otherwise, he is not God. So we have a just God rewarding good, punishing evil. Which leaves us with a problem. Because we are guilty. We have chosen to not follow the laws of the just God. And it's not just once or twice that we've gone against his law. It is every day, multiple times a day, in a variety of ways. You and I, our rap sheet is ever growing. If we walk into the courtroom of God today, our rap sheet is long. If we go into the courtroom of God next Sunday, our rap sheet is longer. Like charges are added on an hourly basis. This is not like we're going in for one thing and then we get there and that's all we have to deal with our life. Can you imagine the if they were to print out every violation of God's law you have ever done in your life? Every careless thought was again that was against God's word. Every careless word, every action that you've done, every gossip that you have told, every lie that you have perpetrated, every time you have done something to somebody else that was unkind or should not have been done. If they were to write out all of that onto a registry of your offenses, how long would that be? And here's what I want to tell you. Whatever you imagine it to be, double that. And the problem is, we serve a just God, and we are guilty. And that's been the case since Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, even in that moment, God sets into plan a motion where he is going to rectify that situation that allows a just God who cannot be with sin to somehow reconcile the relationship with us who is filled with sin. And that all comes to bear in Matthew chapter 27. Look at what happens. And we're going to have verses 45 and 46 on the screen. I'm going to start reading a little bit before that. So if you've got your Bible open or you've got it pulled up on our app, or if you, uh, there's a Bible in the pew if you, from the same version I'll be reading if you don't have one of those. Because I want us to see something about verses 32 to 44 about the state that Jesus is in at this moment when the just God is reconciling us who are guilty back to him. Verse 32 says, as they were going out 
So as they're on their way, as Jesus is on his way to be crucified, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. And so Jesus, so weakened by the loss of blood that has happened from the beatings that have happened to him, from the things that have happened already in the process of the torture of, the, of, of what is going on with his body before he even gets to the cross, he is unable to carry the cross beam, and so they enlist someone just on the side to do it. In verse 33. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. That was supposed to have like a, um, a, a, an effect on helping to, to, to make it, um, the pain go away a little bit, to, to get him a, a little bit uh, of relief. And Jesus refused to drink it. After crucifying him, after putting him up on the cross, they divided his clothes by casting lots. And they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. And then they say, If he trusts in God, let God rescue him. If God takes pleasure in him, if God likes him, God will save him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44, in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. And here's what I want you to get the picture that's happening here. The reason all that is listed is because I think Matthew is setting the scene for us to understand the sheer loneliness that is going on with Jesus at this moment. Think about the picture we just got. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's up there with two criminals. People that are walking by are mocking him. Now the phrases that they use, the way that it is written makes us think that these are probably people that just a few days earlier were people who would have been following Jesus, that would have been listening to his teachings, that would have been believing in Jesus. And yet as he hangs on the cross, those same people who possibly were some of the ones that you'll crucify him a few minutes earlier, were out there looking at him, mocking him, making fun of him, saying, I thought he could rebuild the temple. He can't even get through this. Not only that, the religious leaders of the day, the priests and the, the, those that are around it, the scribes, the Pharisees are gathered around. And for them, this is a moment of triumph because the Kiah that has been the, the one that has caused problems for them for three years is finally going to be out of the picture. And they keep kind of mocking in a mocking term. They're not actually saying, hey, if God likes him, he'll save him. They're saying, wait, why is God letting, him happen to, letting this happen to him? Why is God allowing this to go on? Why is God allowing this? I thought he was God's son. God would never never allow his son to go through this. And then it gives that little note. Now we know from last week that eventually one of the two criminals would realize who Jesus is and ask to be led into paradise and Jesus would allow him. But here it says the two criminals, even the ones being crucified with him, are mocking him. So get the picture. Anybody that's walking by is mocking him. Religious leaders are mocking him. The people next to him are mocking him. He is completely alone in this moment. And for eternity past and present, in the midst of those moments when he's been alone from everybody else in the world, the one relationship that has never been broken is his with the Father.
Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He shouted with all that he could muster. And believe me, in that moment, because of where he was and the process of being crucified, the amount of air that he would have available to him in his lungs, for him to scream anything would have required a major effort. And in this moment, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, what these words actually mean, and by that mean what the translation is from the original language, has never been in dispute. Nobody's ever disputed what the words there are. They are, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What they mean has been questioned almost since this day. In fact, if you read the next verse, which we won't, some people around said, is he calling Eli the prophet Elijah? Is he coming? Like, even then they didn't understand it. But what I think is happening is that in this moment, Jesus experiences the full weight of the sin of the world on him. Now here's what I want you to realize. I don't think that's even like a couple of minute thing that happens. How long did it say darkness was there? What does it say? Three hours. Now, this doesn't take a rocket scientist here. This doesn't even take a Bible scholar. But in the Bible, what is darkness usually associated with? Sin, separation. Light is, so, is, is put with God, with hope. It's not any different than our world. When we think about darkness, complete darkness, utter darkness, we think of things that are not good. Not a lot of horror movies set in the middle of a sunny day. Right? Like that would kind of ruin a lot of stuff. Where you could see everything, like on a clear open day. Like it's always in darkness. Darkness is with evil. I believe. Now, they're, they're, this is one of those things that I've studied and I looked and I believe this to be true. That what is happening is that for those three hours when darkness descends upon the earth, and we don't know exactly what happened there. I don't think this is just a solar eclipse. I mean, we experienced solar eclipse last year around this part. This is for three hours. I will say this. If it was a solar eclipse... Can you imagine how much you would have freaked out if you didn't know a solar eclipse was coming and it happened? Like, what, remember, I don't know if y'all remember this, how eerie the whole thing got. Like, and they're like, I didn't, it was weird, right? Not, and good, none, I'm glad none of you burned out your retinas. I appreciate that for happening on there. But imagine, like, what is going on? Like, you'd look up what's happening there. But I don't think that's what's happening because of the way it's described. I think this is a supernatural event that God brought darkness upon the earth like it was nighttime in the middle of the day. In fact, at high noon. And for those three hours, I believe that God was placing upon his son the weight and the severity of the sin of the world on Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment. How would it be for you to have everything you've ever done? That list of things we talked about earlier, there make a list of everything. What if the consequences, the realities, the guilt, the shame of all of that was placed on you for a three-hour period of your life? That you experienced everything about your sin 
from birth till death in a three-hour period. And now multiply that times the billions of people that have existed on the earth. In this moment, I believe the just, holy, righteous God had to, in some way, and I don't pretend to understand this fully because I don't understand the Trinity fully, I don't understand the Godhead fully, and I don't think I should be able to because I'm not God. But in some way, there was a separation at that moment that had never happened in eternity past. When God looked upon his son and placed the sin of the world on him. To the point where Jesus cries out, Why have you abandoned me? Last week I said that the gospel could be said in four words. Jesus in my place. And what happens here is that Jesus pays our penalty in this moment. That what you have in these two verses of Matthew is a description of what is happening when Jesus paid our penalty. There are three things happening here, I think. There are more than that happening, but three things I want us to focus on today. And the first thing that we see in Matthew chapter 27 happening is that Jesus is our substitution. He is literally taking our place. He is dying our death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus is stepping into my place. He is substituting his death for us. Now I want to use the most trivial illustration of this I, I have, okay? Now I recognize this is a very trivial illustration, but I don't know whether you know this or not, but church softball season is upon us. And I am the emergency, emergency call. And so like if they are down two players with 15 minutes left, they're like, well, maybe Lyle could help us some, all right? And so they call and I'll go out and play, but one of my requirements when I play these days is that I am placed somewhere in the lineup that is far enough away from this young man in our church named Vincent Thomas that anytime I get on base, he can pinch run for me. Because he can run and I cannot. I am thankful for the lack of amens on that from the softball team. But I saw you wanting to, all right? And so I get a hit, which that does... No, shocking. That happens occasionally. I get a hit. Never extra bases that I get a hit because I refuse to run extra bases. And so even if I hit it to the gap, it's going to be a single. All right. And so I get on first base and then my substitute comes and takes my place and I watch as he runs the bases. And I feel no guilt whatsoever in watching him run the bases. I feel complete joy as he crosses the plate because I am crossing the plate with him. He is in my place. Now, I understand that's the most trivial example there, right? But the same is true for Jesus. He stepped into our place. And when he died on the cross, he died our death. The second thing that happens here is a big word. We used it last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. And that is propitiation. Propitiation what? Propitiation. 
This means that not only did he die our death, but he endured our condemnation. This word here is a biblical word. It's used a lot in the Bible. Anytime you see, like for instance, in the the version that we use, the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV, anytime you see the phrase atoning sacrifice, that word in the original is propitiation. They just decided nobody knew what that word meant anymore, and so they started using atoning sacrifice. But the basis of that word means is that he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, God's wrath is not something we like to talk about a whole lot. We don't have, you know, bumper stickers about trusting in the wrath of God or appreciate the wrath of God. But it is a part of God's character. And here's what I want you to understand. The Bible talks about God's wrath over 500 times. And if he was not, did not have a wrath against sin, he would not be God. And when he looks at our sin... He has, and I think that part of the issue is we think that all wrath, all anger is bad. But we are talking about the wrath of a holy God looking at unholiness and filth and things that happen in our lives that are contrary to his will. He is going to be upset about that. He is going to be angry about that. And what it says here in Scripture, what we need to understand is the cry Jesus gives of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a cry of physical agony. Jesus was experiencing the height of physical agony at that moment before he died. It is one of emotional torment. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that he's watching his mother dealing with the death of her own son as he's seeing her down there and the emotional agony that is happening. It is a cry of spiritual anguish as the sins of the world are being placed upon him and he who has known no sin has become sin for us. He is understanding the effects of sin in a personal way that has never happened to him before. He is feeling the weight of that, but it is also one of relational alienation because he is separated from his father for the first time in eternity and he's separated from his father enduring the wrath of God on our sins. And here's what I want you to know. None of us in this room want to or could stand under the wrath of God. This is not some superhero movie where we could all band together and do it one last time. When the wrath of God is turned upon anyone or anything, it's over. Jesus swallows up every bit of wrath in that moment. For those that believe, he has taken us out of ever experiencing the wrath of God. The picture that I've heard used about this that I think is a good picture of what happened in that moment is imagine, if you will, that you are standing against a wall, huge wall, and you're in a valley. And while you're in that valley, you look out, and there is an ocean-like amount of water flooding towards you, and you have no means of escape. There's nowhere you can run. You can't get to one side or another. It is flooding towards you. And at the last possible moment, the earth in front of you opens up and swallows every bit of that water underneath you. And not a drop touches you. 
the physical picture of what Jesus did for us with the wrath of God. The last thing that happens here is not only substitution or propitiation, but it's also reconciliation. We are brought back to a relationship with God. It's the most wonderful news you could ever hear. That even in the midst of our sin, Jesus paid our penalty, swallowed up the wrath of God, and gives us a chance to be reconciled with God. Romans 3.23 reminds us, we use that a lot, it reminds us of our sin. Romans 3.23 starts by saying, for um, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And most of the time when we share that verse, that's where we stop. Like we start down the Roman road. If you don't know what the Roman road is, that's fine. But if you grew up knowing that, our salvation plan, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. Then you go to Romans 10. You, you, like, you do the whole thing. You jump from Romans to give the plan of salvation. And so we just read that and we're kind of done. But here's what I love. Was when you keep reading in Romans chapter 3, it is amazing what it says next. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified. That's those of us that have trusted in the salvation that comes through Jesus. Freely. Didn't cost us a thing. Didn't charge us anything. They are justified. Made right with God. Made justified freely by God's grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, I don't think you heard that. Because I know you're not an amen kind of person, people. But like that's amenable kind of stuff right there, right? I'm going to read it again. They, those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ, are justified freely. Didn't cost us a thing by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's better. God presented Him as, you can impress people now, propitiation in His blood. Received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint... God, the justice God, the God who cannot look upon sin, the God who does what is just and right always in his restraint in order to give us a chance so that he didn't kill us right off the bat. He could have killed Adam and Eve the first day they sinned and been done with this whole human thing. But in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over them. He said, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for what happens in Matthew. When Jesus takes the sin of the world on himself in the cross. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That he would be righteous and declare righteous. The one who has faith in Jesus. And that is good news. Listen. You and I don't deserve to breathe another minute if it's based on whether or not we deserve it. Justice would have convicted us to the death penalty years ago. But in his forbearance, in his patience, for those that accepted us in this room that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, he waited So that when we have that opportunity, we might be saved. For those of you in this room that haven't done that yet, it is his patience and his forbearance that he is giving you second and third chances. And here's the most amazing thing about this. And this is, I want to end with this. 
Because I do believe, and I don't under, like I don't understand it, and there are lots of people out there that don't necessarily believe this, but I believe that there was some sort of separation between Father and Son in that moment. I don't think Jesus just says these words. I know they're the beginning of Psalm 22, and that's a vast, it's important thing about the righteous suffering when they shouldn't, but I think there's some sort of separation that happens in this moment between the Father and the Son because of you and me. And here's why I think he did it. Jesus was separated from his father, so we would never have to be. Jesus was separated momentarily from his father, so you and I would never have to be. Look at what Romans says, Romans 8, and then we're done. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for all of us. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And then just a couple of verses later, the response of that, the per, what happens because of that, is death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of all the cries on the cross, this is the most painful one for me to examine. Listen, we're going to talk about it is finished next week. I get all kinds of glory hallelujahs in that moment. I mean, the rest of them, they're tough, they're difficult. But this one, when I think about the separation that he experienced from the Father for me. Now, I don't know if you're here today and you've ever come to the place where you've accepted what Jesus did on the cross. If you think back to those verses, it said that he made righteous those who trusted in Jesus. If you've never done that with your life, then you're still under the penalty of your sin. God has provided a way through Jesus, through his cross. The question is whether or not you will accept what has been provided for you. Let's pray together.